And would you please bow your head in prayer? So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today and to gather like this as uh, kind of this joint service of Fellowship Bible Church, and we're grateful, Father, that we can worship you in spirit and truth, and we pray that all that is said and all that is done from uh, John's uh, recognition of his service here and his message and the commissioning of new uh, leaders in our church and um, just as we worship you, may you be pleased and honored by what we do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, can you hear me out there in the peanut section? Yeah, they probably don't, but they saw me raise my arm, so they raised it back, right? Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. You know, 29 years ago, a young couple from Texas moved here with their uh, three young kids. They added a fourth. Uh, surprisingly a little bit later, but uh, John and Diane Morrison have been a part of this church for those 29 years. When John came and Diane, when they came here, there was three feet of snow on the ground when they came to Virginia to candidate, and of course we're sending them back to Texas with a little Texas heat, so I hope they appreciate that. John joined a staff of Mike Lukens and myself of a small but uh, growing little congregation here three decades ago. And over the years, um, and I've said this before, I don't know if, if, if anybody has impacted the lives of FBCers or, or the, this church of FBC more than John Morrison. Just uh, uh, a firm belief in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a firm belief in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God to change lives, John has ministered to us in multiple ways and we are very delighted that he has done that these uh, these 29 years I know that um, it has been a privilege to serve with John see his humility his um, his godlike uh, presence just his uh, persona that has, has so blessed us here and it's just uh, it's been a real privilege to serve with John these 29 years and I I, I know he could he could say the same for work, working with me, the same thing. Um, no, it's, it's really been a, a privilege. And as they head back to their beloved Texas uh, to join their kids and grandkids, um, we're just happy for them to be able to do that and know that God is going to open up opportunities for ministry there in Texas as well. It's a little, you know... Uh, Don and Patty left nine months ago, and Don and Patty are here today. So can you stand up, Don and Patty, then Hartog? Where are you? They're, oh, clear in the back. <laughs> yeah. So Don and Patty left us in, in September. Charlie and Sharon in um, the end of uh, April, 1st of May, and now Diane and John leave us. It's amazing in nine months how the pastoral staff at Fellowship Bible Church has gotten increasingly Younger and better looking, just, just by that. But um, we really love the Morrisons and enjoy them, and we'll continue to pray for them. Uh, this is rather brave of me. Uh, I do give John Morrison the last word as he comes. I hope it's the last word and shares the word. So would you welcome John Morrison? It could have been so much worse. I got off easy.
Good morning. What a pretty day. I've heard people for the last few days talk about the heat wave, and I kept looking for it. It still hasn't come, folks. 82 degrees doesn't qualify. Uh, this is a real privilege to be with you uh, for the last time as a staff member. I, I trust in the Lord's good graces it won't be the last time to be with you, but the last time as a staff member, the opportunity to come and bring you God's Word. And uh, I have thought and prayed for... I'm sorry, I've got scotch tape on my lips. Oh well, that thing fell off. Hopefully that'll work. Um, but I have uh, prayed for... I prayed for four or five weeks about what the Lord would have me bring to you as a kind of a final word for this stage in our lives. And once it seemed as though his Holy Spirit had led me to a passage, I couldn't understand why I didn't realize right up front that this would be where he would take me because it's a place that he has been taking me personally a great deal over the last many months. Um, if I can remember how to get a keyboard to disappear from an iPad, there we go. That'll help. Um, we're going to be spending our time over this next half hour or so in John 17 and the first five verses. And I think the reason that God brought that to mind for me um, was two reasons. One, almost 40 years ago, I was graduating from one of, the, one of my programs, and I had a professor who was very dear to me, who was a godly man and loved the Lord and loved us. And after graduation, he invited um, those who had graduated back to the classroom where we had had many of our classes. And he just said, bring a brown bag and let's just spend an hour just sharing with each other what the Lord's been teaching us. And so we did and we discussed. And at the end, he looked at his watch and it was time to go. And he said, well, um, you know, some of us aren't going to see each other again. Some of us will see each other a bit as the years go by. And this dear friend and professor died a, a year ago. Um, but I remember the last thing he said to us. He said, you know, whatever else we've talked about, whatever else we've studied, whatever else we've done in working in one another's lives, let me just leave you with one last thought. There is life in Christ. And there's life nowhere else. And then he repeated it, and we were done. I remembered at the time thinking that seemed a little unusual. Well, of course there's life in Christ. I mean, we're Christians. Doesn't that just, we just kind of know that, right? 
but I knew that the way he was saying it as sort of a final word meant that it meant a great deal to him, and I believed it meant a great deal more to him than it did to me. And I think that was one seed from a long time ago that I think helped contribute to why we're going to go where we're going to go today. But the other reason is this. You as a church... have taught Diane and me so much about the life of Christ. Um, Diane and I had both been Christians many years before we came here. We had taken the Lord seriously. We had walked with him. We had studied him. We had been taught his word. Um, we weren't novices. Uh, I mean, we were, I was almost 40, Diane, 35, but in these last years, by your example, by the word of God, and by the way that you've lived as a community, you have taught me so much more about the reality of the fact that there is life in Christ. If a local church is supposed to be imperfect, but genuine, if it sincerely worships the only God who reveals himself through his word, if, if it's to be marked by the love of Christ for his people and his people for Christ, if it means that the gospel of grace and truth is proclaimed to the world and its people faithfully teach the scriptures, if a church is to be a place devoted to prayer for those who don't know Jesus yet as well as for the body, If a church is a group of people led not by territorial control or pride or the force of a personality, but by the collective understanding of the leading of the Holy Spirit, by leaders who reflect God's spoken requirements of church leaders. If a church is to be, a, a true local church is to be a place where its people pass on to their children the commands the strength and the deeds of God so that they will pass them on to their children that are not yet born. If a church is to be marked by eternal friendship, if a real church is to be a place where people use the gifts God's given them to minister to one another and to the community in the name of Jesus, If a real church is to be a people against whom you sin and who sin against you, but by God's grace you share his forgiveness and his redemption. If a real church is to be a people who point others to faith in Christ because of what he is doing in their lives and because of what his word tells them, then our family has experienced a true local church. Diane and I can't thank you all enough and can't thank the Lord enough. And that goes for our kids. Andrew and Maggie and Michael and James have all been blessed by this place. Uh, even still, when I hear about each of their churches in four different cities, one in Colorado, one in Fort Worth, one in Austin, one in San Antonio, when I hear them talking about their church, they will talk about what they like about it and all that, but then they'll say, 
But in this way, it's different than FBC. And I realize they're not just saying that because they have a familiarity with FBC, but because FBC was planting Christ in their lives. And I just can't thank you enough for that. Because we're already seeing the fruit of that being born in our grandkids. I want to ask you if you have your Bibles or your phones to turn to John 17. We're only going to read the introduction to this longest prayer that Jesus ever, longest prayer that was ever recorded of Jesus. He prayed this in the upper room just before going across the Kidron Valley to be arrested and condemned and murdered. They've finished, they've finished the Lord's Last Supper. And we'll read verses 1 through 5 in the New American Standard. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This passage begins with the words, Jesus spoke these things. And what, he, what, what John is referring to there is everything that he has said from chapter 13 on, uh, kind of especially the chapters 14, 15, and 16. Really powerful and important section, especially for Christians. Uh, it's very much written to Christians. So Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is all set up by John 12 and John 13. And in John 12 and verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 12, 27, he adds, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. In John 13, verse 31, after Judas had left the upper room in order to betray Jesus, he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And now, here in John 17, 1, we read, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that he may glorify you. John 12, John 13 were pointing to John 17. John 17 was pointing to what was going to happen immediately after. And, and what Jesus says in these remarkable passages is, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified? 
Well, now, I thought he would have been glorified when, when he fed 5,000. I thought he would have been glorified when he straightened a man's withered arm. I thought he would have been glorified on a, a thousand other occasions. But when Jesus is referring to his, his glorification and the glorification of the Father, he points to the things that are getting ready to happen. I think glory and glorify are difficult concepts for us. T to glorify means something like let your greatness and your goodness be on display. I, I remember a few weeks ago in church, I don't remember who was speaking or what the circumstances were, but I remember not wanting the worship service to end. I don't know, it's just, it's not always this way every single week, but it was one of these times where I just felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I just felt as though the, the worship music was impacting me more than other times for some reason. The Word of God being explained was impacting more. I don't know what it was, but it was like, I just felt like I was tasting a little bit of His glory. And Jesus' prayer at this time with his disciples that he shares with us because the Holy Spirit inspired John to record these things, says, Father, glorify me because the hour has come. The Hebrew word for glory, kabod, literally means heavy. It means like a weighty presence, uh, Something hard to describe, but you could feel it if you were there. Uh, over 20 years ago, Diane and I and our kids were in a large conference setting for a large semi, well, pol large political event, a couple of thousand people. There were candidates for president and notable congressional leaders. But I'll never forget when one man walked into the room to speak, I felt a presence, uh, an electricity almost like an unspoken authority. His speech was not the strongest. Two other men spoke speeches that I feel like I could remember major parts of to this day. Not his. It, it was a power. It was a heaviness that I couldn't explain. And I, I turned to Diane as soon as he walked in and I felt this. I said, I feel like this is the one who's going to be president. It happened to be George Bush. I recall a thunderstorm in Houston years ago while I was on my way home from a conference. I had to stop for gas, and when I was pumping gas, lightning struck very nearby. In fact, so nearby that the thunder came with the lightning at the exact same time. I almost heard it before I saw the flash. And, and uh, a pressure, unlike anything I had ever experienced, shook and vibrated the air and knocked the gas pump out of my hand and almost knocked me over. That power, the weightiness, something great, much greater than we is a little like glory. Now one day, we're going to see him. And one day, we're going to see his glory. And we will not be able to help but bow. In that day, we will understand glory in a way we can't now, because here we only see shadows of glory.
But what's getting ready to happen to Jesus now, he's arrested while praying, he's unfairly charged, fraudulently tried, unjustly condemned, illegally flogged, and illegitimately crucified, is going to glorify him and through it glorify God. I think that's really weird. I, I just think that's strange. The most unthinkable and ignominious act of all time, the violent, vicious butchery and murder of the most innocent one is the one act by which Jesus predicts glory for himself and his father. How is it possible? Well, look at verse 2. The hour has come, he says, glorify your son so the son can glorify you. Verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Let's just stop right there for a sec. What a peculiar thing to say to me. I mean, I've read this lots of times like you have, but as the Lord led me to this passage and I was, as I was studying through it and praying through it, I, for some reason, for the very first time, I thought, wait a minute, you're getting ready to be arrested and you're getting ready to get flogged and you're getting ready to get crucified and the thing you say at the outset of your prayer is, oh, by the way, you have given me authority over all flesh. That means he has authority over everyone who arrested him, everyone who condemned him, everyone who nailed him. In fact, he allows them, he who is the only true judge allows them to judge him and he does it for them and for you and me. I'm undone by that. Jesus has just gotten through saying this is the whole point of human history. When he said the hour has come, what he means is this is what was first prophesied in Genesis 3 and verse 15. This is what was prophesied all through the Old Testament. That there was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be a suffering Savior who was going to die for people like me who didn't deserve it. People who deserve condemnation instead. And he was going to die for them. And that's what everything was moving towards. And by that he will be glorified. And I want us to think for just a moment, why would that glorify him? Why would it glorify Jesus? Why would, he, why would he, as he announces this prayer to the Father, say, glorify me so I can glorify you? And the way we're going to do it is I'm going to get beaten to smithereens and killed. And he tells us in this exact same passage why that will glorify him. Look at the next thing he says. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Do you realize that if you know Christ today, your having believed the gospel and received eternal life is what glorifies him? That has just really uh, been a remarkable thought to me. That Forty-seven years ago, I was living a life as an enemy of his will. 
And when I was the furthest away from him, when my sin was too great to forgive, at that very moment, he revealed himself and his gospel to me. He had some friends tell me, oh, this is how a person knows they're going to heaven. It's by believing what Jesus did for them and believing that he offers them the gift of eternal life. And it seemed almost too good to be true until they showed me how it, the Bible kept saying it and kept saying it and kept saying it. And I finally, for me, it was like, okay, I believe. But you know, at the time, I thought eternal life just meant going to heaven when you die. I don't know how many of you would think that way, but for me as a kid growing up, I grew up in a church. I mean, we never missed. Well, I take that back. We missed one time in my first 19 years of life, and that was because we were traveling on a trip and we had already missed the church service in the town we were going through and we had gotten the times wrong. It was long before the internet. But I mean... Man, we were always there, and, and a lot of truth was taught in the church I was part of, a whole lot of truth. I mean, I really knew who God was. I really knew who Jesus was. I really knew what he had done. But I didn't know that he offered eternal life as a gift to anybody, no matter how sinful they are, because they believe what he did, believe what he said. That was remarkable to me, but, but here's the thing. For me at age 19, it was good enough to just know I was going to heaven. But look at the passage. Look at the passage. It says, As you gave authority to him over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And then he comes back to that theme in verse 3 and says this, This is eternal life. Notice this. He doesn't say this is eternal life, that they will all who believe get to go to heaven after they die. Now that's true. That's taught elsewhere. But that's not what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. I, I will tell you this, frankly. Um... While I have been here among you, I am somewhat famous for giving away parts of my body to Virginia. Right over here, just a quarter mile or so up the Rome I road, I left parts of my back, parts of my leg, parts of other parts of me on the road because I just decided that lying a motorcycle down at 50 miles an hour was an experience I'd never had before. And I, you know, I've broken my back and I've uh, had quite a few eye surgeries and I've had a number of things that have, uh, have made me physically a very different person. But, but what Jesus says in his prayer is eternal life is not merely going to heaven or merely being forgiven or merely having a prayer answered. It's the knowledge of God. 
And you could be forgiven and you could be, it'd be well understood if you thought, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, I understand what the big deal is about this is eternal life that they may know thee. If, if, if all Jesus is talking about is unsaved people, people who didn't know Christ before, and he's saying, hey, here's eternal life. It's a gift to you. I'm giving it to you. Now, we understand that's a big deal. But he's not only saying that the eternal life I give is a message for people who don't know me. This is actually a time in the book when he's really talking to people who do know him. Now, if you don't yet know him, today is a great day to know this. He loves you. And you don't deserve it any more than I do, but he sent his son to die for you, and he offers you eternal life because when he was raised from the dead, he proved he had power over your sin, power over mine. So that's a great piece of good news. That's why it's called the, the gospel, which means good news. But this is especially also a message for believers, and I want to ask this question of you. Why do you think it would be such a big deal as a message for a Christian to know that real eternal life is not what happens after you die? Real eternal life is the knowledge of God now. Why is that a big deal? You may remember... You may remember that Jesus said earlier in this same book, a verse, John 10, 10. Many people have memorized this even since they were little kids. I came that you might have life, and that more abundantly. I came that you might have life, and that more abundantly. Well, we understand the first part of it. I came that you might have life. He's talking about spiritual life. In other words, I came that you might believe on me, and by believing on me, you would enter into a relationship with my father. You would, you would be going to heaven. Your sins would be forgiven. That's, I came that you might have life. Well, what about the second part? And that more abundantly. You see this John 17, 3, when he says this is eternal life, and he's saying to Christians, the eternal life is the knowledge of God. I believe he's speaking as much as to non-Christians to say, believe on me, he's saying to Christians, do you realize that the growing knowledge of me is where abundant life comes from? I can't tell you how many days and weeks and months and years I have wasted in my Christian life not knowing him abundantly. Time wasted. Not because I wasn't trying. I just think because I wasn't taking him at his word adequately. And you guys have helped me so much in that. I just want you to look at a few verses with me. A few verses that I think help explain a little of why... The knowledge of God for a Christian is as good a news as meeting God through the gospel is good news for an unbeliever. You can write them down, or actually they're on your handout, or if they're on the app, they're on the app so you can look at them. I, I more want you to listen than to look up. You're welcome to look them up, but I'm going to read them to you. I'm just going to comment briefly, and then we're going to be done. 
The first passage I want to read that I think helps illustrate this thing is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 5, I'm going to read, for though we walk in the flesh, and what that means is we're walking in these corporal bodies that aren't glorified yet. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That means when we're engaged in spiritual warfare, we don't use that which comes naturally to us because that would never work. He goes on and says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Well, I remember the first time this was ever presented to me. I didn't know there were divine fortresses or, or, or uh, that there were fortresses in my life that needed to be destroyed. I didn't know that. So even though I'm a Christian and I'm walking in the flesh, I'm engaged in a spiritual warfare. But the only way I'm going to win that battle is by something divine. And then he tells us in verse 5, look at what he tells us in verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Do you see that? It says that things have been erected, fortresses have been erected to keep us from knowing God. Folks, this is written to Christians. If it was being written to non-Christians, it would make sense. Of course, Satan wants people who don't believe yet to not believe. So he tries to get them to not believe. He tells them how bad they are, or he tells them how good God isn't, or he tries to bring up some kind of an argument to get them to not just focus on the reality that the God of the universe has offered the most wonderful gift in the world. So of course he does that. But this is talking about Christians. Why would a Christian have a fortress erected to keep them from knowing God? Now, by the way, this is a, we don't have time and this isn't the time right now, but file away the fact that he actually tells us how to destroy the fortresses that have been erected to keep us from knowing God, he says, by taking thought every, by taking every captive, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Meaning, the way that you and I destroy the spiritual fortresses that we can't see, that are erected to keep us from knowing God, is by holding every thought we have captive to the obedience of Christ. That means aligning it with the scriptures. And by the way, you can't do that by yourself. Neither can I. Had I not been part of a Bible teaching, Christ-loving, genuine fellowship of honest people, I don't mean honest as in they don't sin or they don't lie, I mean honest as in people who are pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Had I not been part of that, there's no way in the world I could share any of this with you. So just file away that little part first. Remember, what we're looking at is this idea that Jesus says that, that the knowledge of him is eternal life. Not the going to heaven thing. Yeah, that's part of it. But even more importantly, if you're a Christian today, your abundant life, your real life is going to be found by growing to know him better. And you can never do that apart from the church. Second passage is 2 Peter chapter 1. There's got two more. This one and one more, and then we'll be, we'll be finished. 2 Peter chapter 1, 
Sorry about that, kid. Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means if you know Christ today by faith, you're included in this. He's talking to Christians. Look at the next verse. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Well, I'll be darned. In chapter 3, he refers to it as growing in the knowledge of him. In fact, even a little later in the chapter, he refers to it that way. He's not talking about meeting him in the first place. You've already done that, most of you. He's talking about growing in the knowledge of him. Look at what it produces. Multiplied grace, multiplied peace. Have you ever wanted just a little more grace? Have you ever wanted to know it's okay to try again? Have you ever wanted peace in the middle of something that was really disheartening and difficult? Here's his promise. The more you get to know me, the more I promise to multiply peace in your life. The more you get to know me, the more I promise you're going to know multiplied grace in your life. Folks, there's very little else that any of us are really looking for but grace and peace. But look at the next thing he says. So he says, grace and peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you see it? He's saying that if you're a Christian, something has already been given to you already. And that within that thing, he says everything necessary for life, he's not talking about biological life, and he's not talking about being born again. He's talking about abundant life. Everything necessary for true life. Life marked by joy, life marked by purpose, life marked by hope. He's saying that kind of life and godliness. Now, I don't know about you, if you're a Christian, and I would think even, I don't know, even if I wasn't a Christian, I think this would probably be true for me, but as a Christian, I can't imagine that if I was given multiplied grace and peace and real life and godliness, meaning that my life comported to the character and person of Christ, I can't imagine anything else I'd want. But did you notice? It says it comes about through the true knowledge of him. Now he changes words and he goes from a word that has to do with a personal relationship with to an experiential personal relationship. It's like an intensification of the term knowledge. It's like, let's say you met somebody here your very first day at Fellowship Bible and they invited you into their community group. And now you've been friends for nine or ten years. And you know how each other thinks and you know each other's kids and you've got each other's backs and you say, no, I really know him now. That's what it's saying. So, so do we understand why Satan doesn't want me or you to really know him? Because if we really know him, if we really know him, we're going to experience true eternal life. We're going to experience the kind of life that other people will want. We're going to experience the kind of life our kids will want. Now, that's just a fact. And finally, Romans 8, verse 6. 
Romans 8, verse 6. Read it. Brief comment. Well, I'm just going to quote it. It says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And he's writing to Christians. And what he's saying is, if you, like me, experience death a lot, anxiety is a, a kind of a death. Depression is a, a kind of a death. Anger that keeps popping up is a kind of a death. Distance in relationship with people is a kind of a death. There's so many things that are death. But he's saying the mind on the flesh is death, meaning ultimately that it means we don't have real hope. When our mind is set on what's natural, which is what he's referring to, the natural flesh, when our mind is set on that, we will just be experiencing anger, resentment, the need to control, all sorts of things. And we'll have a tendency to give up on the Christian life because we're going to think we can't ever make it. Well, it just means my mind is set in the flesh. I've spent years that way. But the second part is such a lovely promise. It says the mind set in the spirit is life and peace. Why do I need a good church? Why do you need a good church? Because the church is the means that God has ordained by which Christians get to know him and non-Christians get to come to know him. That's the church. We're his bride. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to know me. Because the knowledge of me brings so much more than you realize. Don't give up. Don't be content. Don't let yourself become complacent. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I've become complacent in my Christian life. And I'm not here to beat myself up. Jesus was already beaten for that. But Jesus is saying, I came to give you life. And that life is not merely a destination. It's a great and abiding relationship with me and with my Father through the Holy Spirit. And and he tells me <laughs> that that was his whole purpose for coming. The hour has come. The hour has come for what? Well, not merely to be crucified. Yes, that. But the hour has come for him to be glorified. Well, how is he going to be glorified? By giving eternal life to all those the Father had given him. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, because they get to go to heaven. Oh so much more it's because the more we know him the more we understand why people are able to forgive the more we know him the more we're able to see there is life the more we know him the more we're able to see there's a purpose far beyond my white picket fence and my 2.5 children jesus finishes this introduction to his prayer with these words I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which, uh, I, which I had with you before the world was. 
And if we were to have the time to read the rest of the chapter, we would find out that the way he gets glorified besides giving eternal life is when his people grow in the knowledge of him and in the love for one another so that they produce a unity that makes the world stand up and take notice. This church is not perfect, but it is by far the best I've ever been part of. And it's because there are men, women, and children in this church who, who are taking Jesus at his word and who are sharing it with others and are praying for one another. I've never been prayed for like I have this place. I've never been loved like I've been loved at this place. Just thank you for letting us be part of you. Thank you for letting us grow with you. Thank you for the fact that we know we have a home to come to when those kids are driving us crazy. And we're going to look forward to seeing you again in the future. And this will not be a goodbye. This is definitely going to always, always, always be for us. I'll see you later. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that Jesus came for this very thing, to give us eternal life. Thank you that the scriptures go on to elucidate for us on that eternal life, to know that it includes forgiveness of sins. It includes heaven for people to just believe. What wonderful news that is. But thank you that it's so much more than that. It's the knowledge of you, an intimate knowledge of you that brings about an abundant richness in our life. I want more of it, Lord. For my remaining years on earth, I just want to focus on John 17, 3. Please show me more and more what it means to know you. Thank you for the people here who have contributed so greatly to that in my life. We love you, Lord. And I just ask your blessing on this church more in the latter days than the former. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen.